So today's scripture reading is Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others reveal you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks, Satish. Good morning, everyone. So last week, we started a new sermon series, and we're looking in this series at the type of people Jesus calls us to be if we are his followers. We've been looking at the Beatitudes, this, this list that Satish just read to us of people who are blessed by God. And one of the things we said last week is that if we're going to live the way that Jesus calls us to live, we need to brace ourselves for some culture shock. And last week, we looked at Jesus teaching, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know about you, but when we looked at that passage and we unpacked it, it felt shocking to me, like jumping into a pool of really, really cold water, just a shock to my system. Did anyone else feel that? It, it was weird. It was different. You know, I, I grew up in church. I knew from growing up in church that that God accepts the poor in spirit, that I'm supposed to aim to be that type of person, the spiritual beggar. But I've always sort of seen that teaching as like, God wants you to live this way. So sort of do that now. It's going to be tough and miserable for a little while, but then in eternity when you're in heaven, you'll get a reward. Has anyone else ever read the Beatitudes that way? Like, God wants us to live this way now. It's, it's kind of going to be miserable for a while, but then He'll reward us later. But as we unpacked what blessings are, and we saw that the blessed person is not just the one who's accepted by God, but also the one who's supposed to be envied by us. Like that's shocking because that changes everything. Yes, we're sp still supposed to aim to be this type of person, the, the poor in spirit or those who mourn or the meek but it's not a miserable life now that's gonna be rewarded later. It's actually an amazing and freeing and enviable life now that's rewarded partially now and fully in the future. It totally changes our perspective. This is no longer just a chore that I have to make it through with drudgery, but it's an adventure that we get to explore and uncover and unpack each day. And so today we're, we're moving on, we're looking at the next beatitude, blessed, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And just as that first beatitude last week helped us understand and reshape the way we see the world, this one does too. And it reshapes not only the messages we've heard from the world around us, but I'm guessing for many of us, it actually is going to reshape the messages we've heard from our churches over the years as well about how God wants us to live. And so today we're going to unpack this beatitude. We're going to see what it has to teach us about how to live the blessed life, the life that God accepts, the enviable life. And what we'll see today is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we'll look at why we don't mourn, the meaning of mourning, and learning to mourn. 
And we're going to try this again. I know we tried it a few weeks ago and it crashed and burned and did not work, but we've updated it. We fixed it. Hopefully the technology works this time. We have a QR code right here. We're going to do sermon Q&A after the service. So if you, or after the sermon, so if you have your phone, you can pull up your QR code reader right there, and it will pull you to a Google form. If you have any questions as we go through the sermon, you can fill those out. And then after the sermon ends, Les will come up and lead a discussion uh, with the questions that you submit as we go through the sermon. So if you want to pull your phone out and scan that so that you have it available during the sermon, go ahead and do that. I'll give you a minute to do that, and then we'll pray. Yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you want us to live a blessed life, an enviable life, a good life. I pray that you would be speaking to us today, teaching us and showing us how to do that so that we can be people who live properly in your world under your rule. God, help us to love you more and trust you more because of this time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But we're going to start out with why we don't mourn, because it's, it's really good to start by recognizing the things that Jesus is saying here, they're just weird to pretty much everyone in our world, right? Like, it's, there's a variety of reasons that we don't like mourning and weeping and crying in our world. But I think in one way or another, Fergie may have put it best in her song, Big Girls Don't Cry. Isn't that sort of a summary of the way that our world feels about this teaching here? Like, crying is for kids. Maybe when we were younger, we got teased for crying. Maybe if you're a teen, you still get teased for it. And, and we just internalize this idea, what it means to be a mature adult who has my life together, is that I have my emotions under control, that I can hold myself together because big girls or big boys don't cry. Does anyone feel that way towards life sometimes? You don't need to put your hands up. I think many of us feel that way. And that sort of shapes the way that many of us approach emotions and engaging with emotions, especially sad or uncomfortable emotions. And Jesus walks in, in the midst of us feeling this way, that big girls don't cry. And he just flips our expectations completely on their head. Big girls don't cry is replaced by, blessed are those who mourn. It's a culture shock for us. It's a clear indication that life in God's kingdom is lived totally differently than life in our world that the way we've been taught to live our entire lives by the world around us isn't the only way to live. So we're going to look at what Jesus is teaching in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to look at three big factors that tend to keep us from mourning or crying in our world today. Three, three things that sort of feed that idea that big girls don't cry. And the first ingredient that keeps us from mourning in our world today is the pursuit of happiness. You know, if you have to summarize the, the way the average person in our world who's had any type of Western influence in their life approaches life, and by any type of Western influence, I mean like people who speak English, people who watch Hollywood movies. That's like the people in this room, right? Like, even if you're not necessarily from a Western culture and background, we've all been influenced by that culture. And it's reshaped the way we see the world. It's reshaped the way we try to live. And I think if you had to summarize the way that the average person approaches life when they've been shaped by that culture, it could be summarized as do what makes you happy. You know, do you feel trapped and miserable in this marriage you've been in for 15 years and you think you could be happier by just leaving and being single or being with someone else? Then just do what makes you happy. Does this job offer you, uh, seem like it would offer you satisfaction in your work and a good salary that gives you a good lifestyle? Take it. Do what makes you happy. Don't worry about the fact that the company is employing child labor in sweatshops. Just do what makes you happy. 
And if the ultimate goal or aim of life is just do what makes you happy, then there's an obvious parallel goal that goes with that. Always avoid sadness or any cause for tears. Because if I'm sad, then I'm not happy. If I'm having to cry, then I'm not doing what makes me happy. So what do we do? Well, we fill up our free time with activities because we can't bear the thought of being alone with nothing to do. Because if we would ever really stop and just recognize and feel the brokenness in our world and in our own lives, it would crush us. So we just keep trying to fill our lives with activities, entertainment, for some people maybe drugs, social media, whatever it is that can keep a smile on our faces so that we don't have to feel sad. And when you live that way, there's no room for mourning or crying. You just squeeze out all the moments in life that could lead to sadness so you can feel constantly happy. And if you look at world history, that's actually a relatively new approach to life. Like a couple hundred years ago, the idea that you could live life happy all the time just didn't exist. People didn't view the world that way. In older times, people knew life is going to be hard. Being happy all the time is not a realistic option. But that didn't necessarily make them more open to crying or mourning. Actually, there were many ancient teachings that have carried over into our world today that, that kept people all throughout history from crying and mourning. Which brings us to our second influence that keeps people from crying today, and that's Stoicism. I know it's a big word, maybe some of you don't know it. Stoicism is, is basically this ancient belief still held by many people today that life is hard, yes, but your job is just deal with it. Don't show any emotion. Just accept the fact that it's going to be hard and, and power through. You guys know the, the, the idea of like the British stiff upper lip? That's, that's stoicism in today's world. Just life is hard, but deal with it and keep moving on. And because Stoics taught that you just need to deal with the hard things in life and not show anything, they strongly, strongly discouraged crying or mourning. Stoics said, you know, if you're uneducated, if you don't really understand how life works, then you have to cry because you don't know how the world works. But if you're educated, you should be able to hold yourself together. Come on now. You know, if you're educated, if you're wise, then when your spouse dies or your child dies or you just lose everything you've worked your entire life to get in one day, if you're educated and wise, you should be able to, to take that in stride. Don't shed a tear because you know how the world works and, and big girls don't cry. You know what they might recommend if they saw you crying? This is terrible and ridiculous. They'd be like, here's some philosophy for you to read. If someone tried that with you, wouldn't you want to just throw the book at them? <laughs> right? But they taught being educated helps you avoid crying. So if you're crying, then clearly what you need is like a philosophy textbook to help you understand how the world works so you can fight tears. Things in this world haven't really changed in the past like 2,500 years, have they? They avoided crying however they could. We avoid crying however we can. Jesus' words, they're not just shocking in today's world. They were shocking in his world as well. And that brings us to one more source of ancient teaching that many people still hold today that keeps us from crying. And that's what's called cynicism. Now, cynicism is an approach of life that just says everything is hopeless. It's very pessimistic. You know, life is hard and then you die. And that's the end. And there's no more hope for you. Death is the end of everything. So why bother? Have you ever heard people talk that way before? It's a very pessimistic approach to life. And cynicism says, there's no point crying because it doesn't make a difference anyway. You know, we're all just going to die. It's how it ends. The ancient world, they had lots of poetry and statues about, about death. And one person was commenting on this poetry and this art. And they said, in this poetry and art, 
the hopelessness of antiquity finds expression. The hopelessness of antiquity finds expression. The, the ancient world, they looked at death and they said, that's the end of the story for us. Life is pointless. Everything is hopeless. And they recorded those beliefs into poems and statues and art. And if you live in that type of a, a hopeless world, there's no point crying because it doesn't make a difference. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but actual biblical mourning and crying, it's a fundamentally hopeful action because it's looking at the world and recognizing the broken world we live in now is not the way things are supposed to be. It's expressing a hope that one day things will be again the way that they are supposed to be. But if you live in this world without hope, this cynical world, there's no place for tears. Cynicism eliminates space for mourning because, well, I knew it was going to end sadly anyway, so why bother crying? We just harden ourselves against the sadness of life so that we don't have to deal with it. And all of these influences, the pursuit of happiness and stoicism and cynicism, they originally come from outside the church, the non-Christian world around us. But actually, on some level, many of them have made their way into the teaching of different churches, which means that if you have any type of background in the church, you've most likely been taught these things that, that big girls don't cry, not just by the world around you, but actually by the church. You know, if I think back on my childhood, some of the songs that I was taught in church sort of taught that there's something wrong with you as a Christian if you're sad or mourning or crying. You know, there's this one, I don't know if any of you know it. It goes, I'm in right out, right up, right down, right happy all the time. Has anyone heard that song? It's a song about how ever since Jesus came and saved me, I'm just happy all the time. But what's that teaching me as a little kid? If I am sad, if I'm crying, there's something wrong with me as a Christian. Or there's another one, um, maybe more of you will know this one. It goes like, I'm trading my sorrows. Anyone heard that one? I'm trading my shame. I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. And what's it teaching? Like anything that could possibly cause tears in my life, I have given up for the joy of the Lord. And therefore, if, if I am going through anything that could cause tears, it means there's something wrong with me. Like I haven't actually laid down enough of my life for Jesus so that I can experience that joy. There's something wrong with me as a Christian if I'm crying. And those songs sort of teach this subtly and implicitly, but sometimes the teaching is much more direct. I read a story this week of a woman who, her two-year-old di child died of cancer. And people from her church came and they were talking to her and, and they communicated very clearly with her, we expect you to be at church this Sunday with a smile on your face. Because if you can show up for church this soon after such a big tragedy with a smile on your face, you will bear such a great witness to, to how great God is at comforting us. It's not okay to cry. It's not okay to be sad. It's not okay to mourn. If you're a good Christian, you have to show up with a smile on your face. But what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn. Which means if our churches are teaching us there's something wrong with crying, there's something wrong with sadness and mourning, our churches are actually missing some part of the message that Jesus is bringing to us. And I think these, these teachings that we've just looked at that keep us from crying, part of the reason they're popular is that there's some partial truth in them. Right? Like, Think about biblical support for this pursuit of happiness. Proverbs 17.22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. If you look in Galatians 5 at the fruit of the Spirit, joy is right there. Like, clearly, God wants his people to be happy. But when we live in a world that's broken and full of enmity and sin and death, and destruction, and chaos. There's actually something deeply wrong with us if we can never stop and mourn over the brokenness of the world. 
You know, one, one pastor pointed out, medicine is good. The danger of taking too much medicine is you can overdose on it. Laughter is good medicine for your heart, but if you take too much, you overdose and you're not actually healthy anymore. In order for laughter and joy to actually be good medicine for us in the midst of the brokenness of this world, they have to come in a proper balance with mourning. Or think about stoicism and cynicism. They're right in the fact that this life is hard. We are going to face suffering here and now. They are right about that. They're also right that from the perspective of this world, death is the end. From everything we can see and experience here and now, we die and that's it. And clearly God calls us to recognize the difficulty and suffering of life. But stoicism and cynicism, they miss the end of the story. The fact that Jesus is alive again and that him being alive again is the promise and guarantee that we who trust in him will experience resurrection and eternal life as well, even though we can't see it right now. To the extent that we forget the end of the story that God has for us, to the extent that we fail to believe these things are true, these narratives of stoicism and cynicism, they're gonna have power over our lives as well. And so on one level, we, we believe these things because there are pieces of truth in them that appeal to us. But on another level, I think we often just choose to believe this story that it's wrong to cry or mourn because we want it to be true. Like, don't you want to live in a world where crying is just never necessary? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Because when we feel sad, when we want to mourn, it's so uncomfortable. The things that make us sad, the things that make us mourn, they're the things that remind us the, way, the world isn't the way it's supposed to be and you are powerless to do anything about it. Isn't that what makes you want to cry? The moments where you realize the world isn't how it's supposed to be and I can do absolutely nothing to fix it. Like when was the last time you just reflected on that truth and let it sink in? The world isn't the way it's supposed to be and you can't fix it. When we sit under that reality and we recognize it, we admit that it's true, the world's broken, I can't fix it. That is uncomfortable. You know what's way easier than recognizing that truth and feeling sad and powerless because of it? What's way easier than, than seeing our true poverty in spirit and mourning over it? It's way easier to just distract ourselves from it. It's so much easier to just turn on another Netflix show so we don't have to think about it to beat another level of that video, video game so we don't have to recognize how broken the world is and how powerless we are to fix it. It's so much easier to just hop on social media, scroll through the feed, imagine how much better our life would be if we were everyone else whose pictures we're looking at than to really just feel the weight of the fact that the world is broken and I can't fix it. It's really easier to do pretty much anything than, than just sit and recognize that and feel that, isn't it? But when we choose to distract ourselves, instead of sitting there and looking at the brokenness of the world and our ability to fix it, we're actually keeping ourselves from being in a place where we're ready to receive Jesus' blessing. You know, we just want to be happy. We avoid mourning as much as, much as we can. But Jesus says, when we do that, we are missing out on his blessing. Because the comfort that he offers us only comes to those who mourn. And so when we mourn and admit our limitations and our weaknesses, it actually creates space for God to be God and to do all those things that we're powerless to do that we can never do on our own. And so we need to mourn and cry and be sad if we're going to be the people that God calls us to be, people who live for his kingdom rather than this world. So with that as background, let's jump in and see what Jesus is actually teaching us in this verse. We'll start with the meaning of mourning. 
Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, my first question is like, is this a blank check that applies to all mourning and crying and sadness, or is it referring to a specific type of mourning? So for example, totally hypothetical, not saying this has happened in my house within the past 24 hours, but say that you have a two-year-old in your house and your two-year-old really wants to watch their favorite show on TV. And so they come to you and they say, hey, can I watch my show? And you say, not right now. And your two-year-old decides the best response to that is to throw themselves on the floor and scream with tears running down their face. Your two-year-old is in mourning. Is that the type, is that the right type of mourning? Is that, does that fall under this promise, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted? Or is that somehow wrong mourning that's exempt from this promise? Is there a right mourning and a wrong mourning? And if there is such a thing as right mourning and wrong mourning, how do we do the right one, right? Because if, if we want to be blessed by Jesus, we want to understand what's he talking about here? Does that two-year-old who's screaming about not getting his TV show, does he count? And so what I did is I looked through the New Testament for this word mourn and checked the different places it's used to see, is everyone in the New Testament who mourns, do they receive comfort? If you look in Revelation chapter 18, there's three times in that verse, in that chapter, where this word appears in verses 11, 15, and 19. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. And then they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned. And what's happening here in this chapter is that Babylon the Great, the, the center of the world's rebellion against God, is being destroyed. God is, is eliminating all the things that oppose him and bring chaos and death and disorder in the world so he can set up a new creation where everything is the way it's supposed to be and people can live in peace and love and harmony forever, experiencing true abundant life. And there are these merchants and sailors who have made their fortunes through Babylon the Great and the evil things that have happened there. And as they see God's judgment coming and they see that their source of prosperity is gone, they're devastated. They weep and they mourn because they realize my wealth is gone. My prosperity is, is gone. There's no more for me. And so in context, they are people who are actively experiencing God's judgment and who have no promise of future comfort. Actually, the suffering that's causing their mourning in this chapter is actually the, the first step of a bigger suffering that's coming for them that's going to last forever. And so clearly, the fact that they are mourning and there's no comfort coming for them shows Jesus' promise right here is not a blank check. There is a wrong type of mourning that's actually rebelling against God. There's a wrong type of mourning that's upset that God's plans on earth are coming true. There's a wrong type of mourning that's actually seeking to oppose God and people who mourn in this way will not be comforted. I think the two-year-old screaming on the floor probably falls into that category, right? I, I don't think Jesus promised that those who mourn will be comforted is specifically given with that two-year-old screaming because he can't get his TV show in mind. So if that's the case, how do we make sure we're mourning in the right way, in the way that will end in comfort? How do we do right mourning? And in order to figure that out, we need to remember, where does this verse stand in its context in the Beatitudes? Well, it comes immediately after the verse we looked at last week, blessed are the poor in spirit. We said last week, if you weren't here, the poor in spirit are spiritual beggars who recognize they have nothing they can bring to God through their own power, nothing they can do to make God love or accept them. And so when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's like this intellectual recognition that I have nothing I can do to make God love me. Blessed are those who mourn is building on that. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit is an intellectual recognition. Blessed are those who mourn is our emotional response when we realize that. You can't truly see that you are a spiritual beggar with nothing you can bring to God to make him love you without feeling a deep sadness for that reality. Without feeling a deep sadness for what you've done to to make that reality. When you truly understand that you are poor in spirit, you will mourn in connection with that. So there's a connection between the two. Which means if that's the case, in order to do right mourning, we're going to start first and foremost by mourning for our own sin. Our sin is this attitude that says to God, I can do a better job being God than you can. So you stop telling me how to live my life. You get down off the throne and let me be the one in charge of making decisions because I'll do a better job. We, we often tend to think of sin as actions that we do, wrong things that we do. The wrong things we do only ever happen because we have this attitude in our hearts towards God first that says, you get off the throne, I make a better God than you do. And this attitude towards God and the actions that flow out of it actually put division between us and God and put division between us and other people. And when we see and we feel that brokenness that we brought into the world through our sin, the way that we've caused separation and gap between us and God, the way that we've harmed our relationships with others, the only proper response is mourning. But we don't only mourn over our own sin because we're not the only sinners in the world. And all sin causes chaos and destruction and death in God's world. Sin unravels the fabric of how things are meant to be in the world. And so if we're doing right mourning, we're also mourning over the sin of others. And I realize we we often tend to be upset about the sin of others when it hurts us. But this is calling us not just to be upset about the way that their sin hurts us, but just about the way that their sin disrespects God and brings chaos and death and destruction to his world, even if we aren't impacted by that at all directly. And then third, we mourn over the effects of sin. Death and destruction only come into our world as the result of sin. Death and fighting and disorder, they're not the way God designed this world to work, but they've all come into the world through sin. And as we see the way the world is, how broken and messed up it is, and we recognize that's not how God wants it to be, we mourn that gap. We mourn the disconnect between God's good plan and the way things are now. And so we mourn when we see people oppressed by people more powerful than them. We mourn when we see families torn apart by infidelity. We mourn when we see children being bullied by their peers. We mourn when we see poverty that's caused by crime and oppression. If you see these things and your response is to mourn and cry and be sad, it doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're emotionally immature. It doesn't mean you need to sort of level up emotionally so you can hold yourself together. No, it just means you understand things are supposed to be one way and they're not that way. And it's sad that they're not that way. So let me ask you, when was the last time that you mourned over the fact that you said something that hurt someone else? When was the last time you experienced grief because you lack self-control and acted in a way that hurt yourself or others? When was the last time you shed tears because of your pride or over your lack of concern for others? I don't know if you realize this, but if we've never mourned for these things, that's actually deeply concerning. It means we're not in a place where we're ready to receive God's blessing. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. If you've never mourned any of these things, 
I'd strongly encourage you to take some time with God and do some soul searching and figure out where you really stand with him. And recognize this morning that Jesus calls us to, it's not a one-time thing. The verb is continuous, which means it's ongoing. The more aware we become of our own sin and the sin of the people around us and the brokenness of the world and how out of line it all is with God's plan, the more we're gonna mourn. And again, let me clarify, Jesus isn't saying Christians are just supposed to be depressed and upset and pessimistic about life all the time. No, we've already seen several Bible passages where, where God wants us to be joyful. But just as a life of constant joy with no tears is unbalanced and unhealthy, a life of constant tears and no joy shows that we're not really understanding what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus wants us to have as his people is a full emotional life that rejoices at the right times and for the right reasons and that mourns and feels sadness at the right times and for the right reasons. He's given us our different emotions so that we can connect with him and experience the fullness of what he wants us to experience on this earth. And yes, it causes problems when it goes wrong, but, but the emotions themselves are not a bad thing. They're not wrong. They're given to us to help us connect with him. And I know focusing on, on sin and feeling sad about it, it, it just feels depressing, doesn't it? Is anyone feeling really down so far this sermon? A little bit? I recognize that, okay? But recognize this too. We have a quote. The saddest thing in life is not a sorrowing heart, but a heart that is incapable of grief over sin. For it's without grace. Without poverty of spirit, no one enters the kingdom of God. Likewise, without its emotional counterpart, grief over sin, no one receives the comfort of forgiveness and salvation. Mourning our sin is hard. It is sad, but it's sad because it's supposed to be sad. It should be sad. It's a sadness that leads to hope and comfort and blessing. Because when we do it, we know that the comfort of God is waiting for us. When we mourn in the way that Jesus is calling us to mourn, we're not mourning forever. We're not mourning for the sake of mourning. We're mourning because mourning is part of that pathway to experiencing God's comfort. The deeper sadness is actually being in a place where we can't mourn our sin because then we're trapped with it and we're not on that path to comfort. But Jesus invites us to mourn over our sin and he tells us that when we do, we will be comforted. So let's look at learning to mourn. How do we learn to mourn despite how uncomfortable it is? And we'll never get over these, these barriers that keep us from mourning until we believe this promise at the end of the verse, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we believe that comfort comes to those who mourn, when we believe that joy, not despair, is always the end of the story when God's involved, that gives us the freedom to overcome the deadly lies of stoicism and cynicism. It actually does more than just help us overcome the lies. It reorients our hearts. It shows us the true path to the joy we've been craving all along. It doesn't come by avoiding mourning and sadness and sorrow. It actually comes through them. The joy that we long for comes through mourning and sadness and sorrow, not around them. And what is this comfort that we're promised? Well, if the mourning is for sin, our own and the sin of others and the brokenness that it brings in the world, I think there's two levels of comfort that come with it. The first level is this reassurance right here, right now, that God has forgiven our sins. We see our sin. We see how terrible it is. We see that it needs to be mourned, but we don't mourn our sin because it defines us. We don't mourn our sin because it has us trapped. We're mourning the fact that it puts a separation in our relationship with God. But what does God do with that separation? He comes down and pays the price so we can be restored to him. The cross gives us ultimate perspective on our sin. It tells us our sin, it needs to be mourned because it's so horrible that the only way to fix it is the death of God himself. But at the same time, it tells us we don't need to be crushed by our sin because we're forgiven. 
We're free. It doesn't control us anymore. So when we mourn for our sin, we're given reassurance that our sins are forgiven. There's a comfort and a reassurance right here, right now, as we mourn our sin. Those who mourn will be comforted. But then there's a second level that that we won't get fully in this lifetime, but we will get one day. And that's the restoration of all the brokenness that sin has caused in our world. In Revelation chapter 21, verses four and five, it promises us a day is coming when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more cause for tears because God is making everything new. All the brokenness that sin brings into the world will be destroyed once for all. All the world will be new and whole, just like it was always meant to be. And these things come from God, but so often he delivers that comfort through other Christians. God has given us the community of the church so that when we see one another mourning over our own sin and over the sin of others and the brokenness of the world, we can bring God's comfort and peace to one another. We can be the messengers who deliver his, his promises to one another. You're forgiven. I know you feel crushed by the weight of your sin, but God's not condemning you. You're forgiven. God's making all things new. It won't be this way forever. There's hope. There's always hope because God's at work. And so God uses us to be messengers of that hope in one another's lives. God might use you today to be his messenger of hope for someone else in the church. And I know, like I said, this is uncomfortable. No one likes to mourn. No one likes to be sad. But looking at the example of Jesus, he showed us through his example, this is the best way to live. Throughout his life on earth, he mourned. He mourned the sin and unbelief of the world around him. He mourned for the destruction that was coming to Jerusalem because of their lack of faith. He mourned as he was getting ready to go to the cross, he mourned the suffering that he was gonna face there. And as he hung on the cross, he mourned God's silence and the pain that he felt because of that. But Jesus was comforted. God raised him from the dead, which means life, not death, has the last word in his story and our stories. Because Jesus is alive, we have the ultimate proof that in God's story, joy always has the last word, not despair. And because Jesus followed this pattern of mourning first and then comfort, we as his people are called to recognize that's the pattern that he wants us to follow as well. Blessed are those who mourn. If you're anything like me, that still just sends a little shiver down your spine. It feels so weird, doesn't it? We're deep in the depths of culture shock right here. But we're also being drawn into the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus that's drawn to us in our weakness and our failure and our sin. And that in those moments reaches out to us with healing and comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us and showing us who you are and how you call us to live in response to that. And God, we confess so often we just have failed to live that way. I pray that you would reshape our hearts and our loves and our desires so we live in line with the way that you call us to live and that we can be the people that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to put that QR code back up on the screen. If you have any questions, go ahead, scan it, type them in, and Les is going to come up in just a minute, and he will uh, help lead our discussion of any questions that might come in. Hi, can I just check with everyone if, if um, the Google form is actually working? If you're able to input a question? Is anyone ha- having any problems with it? 
Okay, I'm just going to give us a, a, a couple more minutes if you've got, uh, if you need it to input your questions. I have one question here um, for Eric. Uh, Eric, as a church, what does it look like uh, for us to encourage each other to mourn and to go through mourning? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think that's something we probably need to, to work through and figure out together. Um, I, think, I think one thing is just being in deep enough relationships with one another that, like, one, we can see the things in other people's lives that, that maybe, like, oh, this is something that it's probably worth mourning and you're not mourning. Like, it, it takes a deep relationship to see those things because we're all so good at putting on a good face and showing up for church and everything's put together and good. Um, and really, the stuff that, like, the, the sins in our lives that need to be mourned, often we're good at hiding those below the surface. And you're not going to recognize those in other people unless you know them well. Um, and you're not going to be able to, to speak into those things unless you've actually invested in building trust in that relationship before you have to say the difficult things. Um, and so I think, one, just knowing like, what's going on in one another's lives. How can we hold one another accountable? Um, two, just knowing one another well enough to, to recognize when difficult things are happening in their lives. Like, I think in Hong Kong, we, we tend to aim to be very self-sufficient. And so people will like go be in the hospital for a week and no one knows that they're in the hospital until they're like out of the hospital already, right? And, and like typically when you have to go to the hospital, something very difficult is happening for you, right? Like something that's reminding you, the world is very broken, I'm out of control, I'm powerless. Um, again, those are the types of things that are good to mourn. And so just being able to have other people who are aware of that and who are able to talk to us and just be like, you know, this is a difficult time, almost giving us permission to mourn. Like, this is difficult. It's okay to be sad about that. Um, but again, that doesn't happen unless we have deep enough relationships that, that people know what's going on in our lives and that we feel comfortable being vulnerable with them and sharing about the difficulties we're facing too. So I think a good first step is just getting more connected with one another. Okay, thank you. And, and, and to build on that, um, would you say that uh, learning to mourn uh, is, is obviously a journey as well as... A yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I think I mentioned last week, like, we're never going to achieve perfect poverty in spirit this lifetime. We're never going to learn to perfectly mourn properly for the right things all the right times in this lifetime. But I think it's a journey where we can help one another grow. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you. The next question I have is, do you have to cry to mourn, or is crying more an effect? Yeah, so I think the Greek word that Jesus uses here means something along the lines of feeling some type of sadness internally and having an external response that corresponds to that. Um, and so I think it, it's not necessarily like you must shed tears or else, but I think there is this, this feeling of sadness inside of us and something externally that corresponds with that. Um, not just like, I'm going to go watch Netflix to numb myself so I can avoid feeling that sadness, but actually something engaging that sadness. And, you know, for some people that might not be tears, uh, but I think for many people it is. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me just look at the next question here. I feel so weak in terms of combating my weakness and sin. Um, would you say I would need to have better self-control? Uh, welcome to the club. <laughs> we are all so weak in combating our weakness and sin. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's something, again, we, we can all grow in this area. We can all have, have growth in this area. I think, again, um, just relationships are so important. I keep coming back to that, but it's true. Like, one thing I notice again and again and again in myself is, like, either I'm just completely blind to the sin issues in my life 
until someone comes along and is like, hey, Eric, like, you realize like, when we play games, you're super competitive and no fun to be around? <laughs> like, what's going on in your heart there? I'm like, oh, oops. Or I can recognize that something is wrong, but I'm just terrible at processing that on my own and sometimes just need someone to talk to to help me understand like, what's going on below the surface that's causing all these issues that I can see. Um, and I think if we're trying to go through this alone, obviously prayer is powerful, obviously God's word is powerful, but there are always gonna be things we miss because our perspective is so lacking when we're just looking at ourselves. We're, we're always gonna either be our biggest advocate and, and explain away things that need to be dealt with or be our biggest critic and blow things out of proportion that aren't a huge deal or do both of those simultaneously. Uh, but having other people that, that know what's going on in our lives, that are able to know us deeply enough that, that they understand what drives us. And, and even just someone who can come up and say like, you look like something's off today, what's going on? We don't even realize something's wrong or maybe we feel it, but it's not consciously there. Just having other people that, that have that relationship and that trust and that connection with us plays such a huge role in, in helping us learn to fight our weakness and sins. Because, you know, until we identify what's going on, like what the specific things below the surface are, we're trying to fight an enemy we can't see. That's always a losing battle. Um, and, and Jesus says, the truth will set you free. I think sometimes we're scared to find what we'll see below the surface if we really dig in and, and look at like the root of what's causing our issues in life. But Jesus says the truth will set you free. And so having people around you who can help you recognize and engage and identify that truth can be so powerful in helping learn to fight it as well. Yeah.